Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Way important that we talk to John Golub than Jerome Powell. I agree this morning. That is the story. Credit Suisse. We were just having a nice casual Friday morning, Lisa and I. Tom was away. It was very relaxing, I have to say, Tom. And then the email came through from the team at Credit Suisse. S&P 500 to 4,600 on stronger earnings. Let's bring in Jonathan Golub right now. John, why the change? Let's start there. Well, I mean, more than anything else, this is an earnings story that our earnings estimate which when we put it out at $185 of earnings for the S&P was the highest on Wall Street. And it's just too low. The, 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 the numbers are coming in just too strong. And it's not in one group. Banks are beating by 35%. Um, tech is beating by almost 30%. Industrials, discretionary companies are up 50, 60% on average. And you know, ultimately, we needed to you know, increase the earnings um, outlook. That was what drove it. And then we, as we see that the, the overall stock market price was right on our tails. And so we moved our numbers up. <clears throat> John, you know, I, I got to congratulate you, folks. You're looking at the guy who came out in January and said, if you sell tech and go to everything else, you're going to be out of your minds. In hindsight, John, you look like a genius. What do I do with tech? As Lisa mentioned, they didn't move on earnings. No surprise there. Are they part of your lift to 5000 uh, yes and no, Tom. I, I mean, we actually think that boring old economies that listen, I've been a growth guy, a tech guy for a very long time. And every kind of stock has its moment in the sun. I don't know if this is the moment in the sun for tech. I think this is the time for old economy stocks, because these are companies with big fixed overhead with that, that tend to respond more to the kind of stimulus that we're seeing proposed by the Biden administration and, and generally the kind of overheating we're seeing in the general economy. Can we see earnings like this continue and the four, uh, four six thousand, four six hundred, excuse me, four six thousand maybe next year uh, for the S&P without a commensurate rise in yields, without a commensurate read through to the bond market? And how much is there a feedback loop here? Well, first of all, I, I, my expectation is that we're going to see interest rates rise a little bit from here. And if you actually look at how stocks respond, they want higher interest rates. And that's because what we're seeing right now with, with the 10-year bond yield at 1.6 and with Fed funds at zero, it's a sign that the economy is not yet on stable footing. And so the market wants to see the demand for capital strong as a sign that things are, are healthier. So if we had interest rates you know, closer to 2% by the end of the year, the stock market is higher, not lower. 2022 EPS, 215. That's an upgrade too. And John, the interesting thing about this note is that it includes a tax haircut as well. Can you set the stage for 22 already, John? Well, you know, this was, you know, this was actually a big discussion point. What the convention is on Wall Street is until the tax changes happen, you ignore them. But the reality is the market's not ignoring it. So we basically said, we know that this tax thing is, is likely to happen. Um, the consensus view is that, the, that that Biden doesn't get his 28 percent, but that the tax rate goes to 25 percent. That's about a 4 percent hit to earnings. Now, 4 percent hit to earnings is a big deal, 
but the earnings this season are beating by 22%. So um, we moved our number from 210 to 215. But if you compare me to other strategists on Wall Street who haven't done that, I'd be at 225 if you if you ignore the taxes. So big numbers. Did you move on a revenue gross up or was it margin resiliency or both? You know, in general, Tom, first of all, what we're seeing is, is that both revenues and margins are seeing a lot of flexibility. But the whenever you see an economy reopening after a recession, it's always the margin line, which is where all of that incremental upside is going to be. And the one mistake that analysts and investors, portfolio managers, doesn't matter, they always underestimate is operating leverage. How much a small change in economic growth creates huge change in profit margins. And that's, that was really the big deal here. John, before you go, I just want to gauge sentiment. When you hit send to clients on Friday, how well received was this? What was the response like? I'll tell you, the, you know, you're going to laugh. The single biggest um, comment we got back from people is, come on, you don't think we can get to 5,000? <laughs> no, there not, you go. Yeah, I'm not saying we're going to go there, but well, listen, we're eventually going to get there. But um, Okay, quote that right there. <laughs> eventually we'll get there. <laughs> Without the time forecast, just pick one. John, it's going to catch exactly. up, as always. Jonathan Gollum <laughs> of Credit Suisse is going to catch up. going to turn to pros like Bruce Kasman. Let's bring in Bruce Kasman right now, JP Morgan <laughs> Chief Economist and Head of Global Economic Research. Bruce, let's start there. How difficult it is to forecast in this environment for you right now? Well, I think it's difficult to tie down exactly how strong the economy is doing, but I think it's pretty simple to recognize that we're in the midst of a boom here in the U.S. And, you know, what I also want to emphasize is, is partly off the conversation you just had, is Europe's about to join us. So there's gonna be fairly broad-based strength in the global economy for the next six months or so. Uh, Bruce Kevin, good morning. Tom Keene uh, in New York. I wanna to go to Casman Economics, uh, which is your 26-page must-read Friday evening. The world stops. Everybody sneak and looks at it as they pretend they're doing social uh, work. And, and Bruce, the first chart is always the most important. You have a spectacular U.S. chart of the partition of inflation of goods and services. When does service inflation catch up? Um, well, it's not going to fully catch up, partly because, as you've been noting, there's uh, supply shortages and goods prices are going to continue to rise rapidly. But I think March was the first month where we started to see service price inflation pick up. And I think it's going to be the big event in the next few months that overall inflation is going to be lifted both by service prices normalizing and goods pricing staying strong. John, I think this is the absolute key metric with that jobs report that we're going to see Friday is the path of service uh, inflation. There's a real mystery to it. And wages, the compositional story, Bruce, picking up again. We've got to talk about wages and whether wages will be useful for the next several months. How much longer will we have to look at a labor market that is distorted by the events of the last 12 months? Well, I think when you look at the big gains in jobs, you're also seeing, I think, the rotation back towards the depressed service sector. And I think in terms of wage inflation, that's actually going to be a depressing effect. I do want to emphasize, especially if we're talking about inflation, there's two very different stories here. One is how much pressure are we getting as we get this booming growth and we normalize. And we think we're going to get a fair amount of inflation pressure in the near term off of that. But I think if you look at what's happening in the wage measures that are not distorted, if you look at where levels of service price inflation are, we're still pretty low. So I think as the Fed has been doing 
you want to look through some of the near-term dynamic, which I think is going to be powerful, and recognize we still got a way to go before we normalize inflation. And I hear that, although near-term dynamic is difficult to say when you talk about the Intel CEO coming out over the weekend and saying that the chip shortages are going to continue for years. He doesn't see it uh, easing very much at all. How do we decide this is transitory? At what point in the year can we say, okay, now we have a true assessment of the post-pandemic economy? Well, I don't think it's going to be easy. Um, and, and quite frankly, I think what we're going to see in the next few months is not going to be very very indicative of the trend. However, I do think if we're right, that we can carry strong growth into next year, given where the labor market is, uh, given what the Fed is trying to do. I'm a big buyer of the fact that we're going to have a trajectory of higher inflation. I just think this year's move is not going to be particularly indicative of the magnitude of that acceleration, <clears throat> but it's happening. I think this is not what we've been living through for the last 20 years on the underlying dynamics. Just don't buy how strongly the near term is going to be sending a signal. We've stopped talking about a K-shaped recovery a bit, Bruce, and I'm wondering how much the K-shaped recovery not only has persisted, but will hamper some of the full employment metrics that we see later in the year. Well, we do have an economy in which there still are some sectors <clears throat> that are really badly hurt that haven't recovered. And even with what we're looking at uh, over the next three to six months, we're still not expecting jobs to get back to where they were uh, before the pandemic, at least till sometime early next year. So there's still a lot of damage. There's scarring. I think the important point about scarring as a macroeconomist is this is scarring that is going to be very painful in some parts of the economy, but it's not hitting the financial sector. It's not reflecting an overhang of housing or CapEx. Uh, it's not hitting major EM economies. This is not right. going to hurt the macro economy the way the scarring after the global financial crisis did. So recognize scarring, but recognize it's not the same kind of macro driver yeah. of either growth or inflation going forward. Bruce, I know you took a call from James Diamond yesterday afternoon. He was sort of thinking about 2021 and Ford. Let me ask the same question Jamie Diamond asked you. Do the wealthy escape higher taxes? Do you just assume if we get the tax policy we're talking about that the fancy people somehow ex uh, escape the tax burden? Well, I think taxes need to go up if we're going to be financing this infrastructure bill and, and other things. And it's built into our forecast that there is an increase um, in taxes. I do think we should understand that against the backdrop of what we're seeing in terms of wealth gains, against the backdrop of what we're seeing in terms of the economy overall, that's not going to be a near-term drag on the economy. We can have a long debate about where the optimal level of taxation is, but I don't think either on the CapEx side from higher corporate taxes or on the uh, household side that tax increases <clears throat> in the next year or two are going to be a drag for this economy. Hey, Bruce, always good to catch up. Good to catch up this Monday Bruce, morning. Bruce Kassman there of J.P. Morgan. Right now, we talked the conference board. Going back to before World War I, the conference board was absolutely definitive in corporate America addressing the labor arrest of this nation across 100 years plus. Dana Peterson is their chief economist. Dana, you just did a definitive study of the great divided America that only the conference board can do, and that is, I have a job, things are great. I'm out of a job. Things are really bad. Has that divide been ever greater? 
I'm sure there have been other times it's been greater, but certainly we have been talking about the K-shaped economy here where you had people who never lost their jobs. They received stimulus checks and they were able to save and pay down debt and even spend on goods. Uh, meanwhile, you had many people who did lose jobs and they were on unemployment and certainly are still we still have eight and a half million people who are still unemployed in America. If we do eight and a half months of one million job formation and we get back to that point, then we have to grow from there. Do you see an economy that can grow jobs once we get back to February? Well, I see an economy where we can grow jobs right now. We're seeing labor shortages among certain industries, certainly trucking, manufacturing, construction. And even when you look at services, gyms are reopening, restaurants are reopening, and they just can't find people. Um, some of that's a function of people still being afraid to go out uh, for fear of getting uh, sick, um, but also because of skill shortages. And also, it's just it's just really kind of a wild market here. Dana, do you think that services inflation, that the uh, that the actual job increases may be more persistent, longer lasting than people are currently accounting for? Well, that's certainly something that uh, Chair Powell uh, talked about. There could be some wage pressures here, certainly as we get into later on in the year, where more people are more willing to go out, uh, businesses and person services are reopening, and we could see uh, prices go up there. And also, in terms of inflation, um, we're already seeing, uh, or hearing rather, that corporations are thinking about raising prices. Uh, due to the fact that you have the supply chain bottlenecks, you also have commodity prices rising, especially for energy, and they're looking to pass all that on to customers. So we're potentially uh, going to see faster prices, both uh, in consumer prices and wages. Janet Yellen seemed to weigh in, uh, siding with the Fed's line so far, saying that this is all transitory, that we're going to return to a lower inflation standpoint, uh, and that Joe Biden's spending plan won't materially juice inflation going forward because it will be spread out over a decade. Do you buy that argument? Well, there are two parts of that argument. One is uh, transitory factors. And indeed, we do think that some of the inflation pressures we're going to see in the second quarter and over the course of this year and maybe a little bit next year are transitory. They're related to the pandemic. Uh, certainly, they're also related to supply chain uh, disruptions, which are also related to the pandemic. And those things are probably going to fade. But other types of inflation, uh, especially with respect to uh, inflation around building homes is probably here to stay. People are working remotely, people are looking for more space, and we don't have enough homes. Uh, meanwhile, the chip shortage, uh, semiconductor chip shortage, that's not going to be solved overnight. You can't build a chip plant overnight. And so some of these types of inflation that we're seeing are going to be more persistent. Yeah. When we're looking at uh, the administration's plans, well, certainly if you have much faster growth, you're probably going to see some inflation pressures. Um, and that's more or less what we're expecting. What do you hear from the clients, the corporations of the conference board? Dana, there's so many walls of worry. You just beautifully laid out some of those. The, the, the worries now are comical within this boom economy. What do you actually hear from business people? Well, we're hearing that... Um, they think this year is going to be great in terms of growth. Uh, our own forecast is 6% growth. Other people, 
<laughs> but for next year, uh, we're hearing that they're very much concerned about inflation pressures. They're also concerned about trade, uh, just given the fact that the U.S. and China are still uh, having somewhat frosty relations around trade and intellectual property ma matters, that this is going to spill over into next year and that we're going to see potential slowing in growth, material yeah. slowing. Tom, that's what happens when you cut off the gas. They stop talking. <laughs> no, it's they, original, no, it's isn't it? Fine. So unexpected. This is great. I mean, you know, this is really, really important. The He's always shocked by it. Perspective is really, really important. Tom, Ethan Harris of Bank of America just published in it. We're just going through the note quickly, so let's bring it to our audience. Please. Unfortunately, there is a trade off between the speed of the recovery and its length. Then he goes through a number of bullet points. Ironically, the much faster US recovery likely means a shorter expansion than in other countries and other cycles. And of course, reflecting on the very, very exceptionally long cycle that we had, long cycle we had in the previous one. Dana, I want to bring you in on this because Morgan Stanley have pushed this idea too. Shorter, hotter, this time around. Dana, what's your view on that? Well, I think that makes sense, just given the fact that this was a recession unlike any other. We essentially just kind of cut the spigots off, right? And then we're turning that, them back on. And it wasn't the case that we had some asset price blow up or something really major underlying uh, structural factors that cause a recession. It was a pandemic. And basically, government said, well, this is dangerous, so let's shut off half of the economy, the services sector. Now we're turning things back on. So yes, things are going to be hotter for a shorter period of time. But most likely, we're probably going to get back to pre-pandemic levels of activity and then probably settle in at a lower growth rate, a growth rate that's probably more consistent with where the economy was just before the pandemic. So the destination is not a bust. You don't subscribe to the boom-bust argument. It's a return to trend. Yes, indeed. Dana Peterson, always good to catch up. Dana, thank you. Conference thank board, you. chief economist. And Dana, you know how it works. When Tom speaks, just keep talking. Right now in the pandemic, Howard Foreman joins us. He is a radiologist, but far more than that, is the builder of public health and public service studies at Yale University, professor of radiology, economics, and public health. We're thrilled that Dr. Foreman uh, could join us this morning. Howard Foreman, there is a pandemic, but what's so different now is in this modern America and our modernity, we use technology. We have a technocratic solution to everything. How does the technocracy of a America try to come out of a pandemic? Well, it's not easy because we have, you know, we have different classes of people now, people that were able to work very well from home, who had very low exposure and infection rates uh, to, the, to the virus, but nonetheless had their lives uh, turned upside down. And then you had a lot of people that we, we refer to as essential workers, and, and probably more than that are essential workers. But they had to run the buses, they had to run the trains, they had to sort of move the food and, and other goods back and forth between people. And their infection rates were much higher and we decimated large populations throughout this country. And so we're gonna have to rationalize that over time, but recognize that we, we do suffer almost as a country from post-traumatic stress disorder of a type. We've been through a trauma uh, we're continuing to feel the reverberations and the anxiety that exists even after the trauma is starting to wane. There is so much work still to do, Doctor. I just wonder from your perspective whether you think we have an irrational fear of COVID-19 in this country as we are here today. I think we do now, and I certainly have not said that before. I think we're getting to a point now where what we are seeing and experiencing 
is much closer to a bad flu than it is to what we experienced earlier or what places like India are experiencing right now. And we should start to think about how we manage a bad flu as opposed to how we manage the pandemic that wiped off uh, about 600,000 people, or maybe more if you really look at the numbers from the United States. Doctor, they're really strong words to come from someone like yourself. As you say, this is not something you've said before on a programme like this. What would you suggest underpins the reluctance of health officials to say what you just said? You know, we've made a lot of mistakes over the last 14 months, and nobody wants to fall prey to hubris that you know, you look at, at Modi in India saying in March that this is now over. I don't think anyone wants to fall prey to that. And it's a lot easier for me to opine and, and know that I have 90 or 95 percent likelihood or higher of being correct than it is for a public official who, um, you know, really holds that very, very uh, strong responsibility to the entire public in their hands. Um, so, I don't really dismiss their difficulty in moving faster in that way. I do think that what we've learned is that the FDA as an, as an entity within government can move very quickly. The CDC seems to be much more deliberate. And maybe given the fact that this is a pandemic, this is a crisis, we need to hold them accountable to being a little bit quicker and analyzing data um, in a manner that befits the, the fast-moving nature of this uh, pandemic. Dr. Forbin, you say that there is uh, basically, no one wants to say it's over and be the person out there saying that, but there is a difference between saying it's over and saying this is something we're going to have to live with and we're going to have to exist with the coronavirus being here in a perpetual fashion. And how much do you say that at this point, because we've gotten to a place where the most at-risk people are not going to be necessarily uh, at biggest risk for dying because they've been inoculated and that the risks of continuing with social distancing and not having kids in school is greater. Yeah, no, and I think we are moving that way. I think that the people that were uh, equivocating about school three, six, nine months ago, which included me early in the pandemic, are those that now feel that we must be back to school. Um, Yale University, my employer is going to be back to a, a very close to normal function by the end of August and probably mostly over the summer as well. I think that we're going to see that and we're going to have to watch the way private actors respond um, as well, because private actors, including Yale University, are the ones that can make the bold moves and show the public that this works just as they were able to do uh, bold moves a year ago uh, relative to where we were in the pandemic at that time. Talking about bold moves, Dr. Foreman, what would you do with respect to some of the travel restrictions currently in the United States with some of the guidance from the CDC as to what people who are vaccinated can do? Um, look, most of those are being lifted in most regions. There are parts of the country where uh, the pandemic is still worse. Michigan was, Oregon is. Um, so it's really hard to make a blanket proposal, but I do think lifting travel, you know, travel restrictions in keeping with vaccination, I think is a reasonable thing. And I think it also signals to people that we know that once you're vaccinated, you are very safe. You're not perfectly safe, but you're not perfectly safe from the flu either in a typical season. So you are very safe at this point once you're vaccinated. There is you know, one big uncertainty ahead is what's the durability of the immunity from vaccination? Is it going to wait? I'm one of the earlier people to be vaccinated 
I completed vaccination on January 6th. Is my immunity going to wane by September, October, November, December, or when is it going to wane? So there is a lot of uncertainty still out there, but I think we have plans for that as well in terms of booster shots, in terms of, of managing and monitoring variants. I think that we're going to do well with that. Howard, please come back soon. It's been good to catch up. Good to hear from you. Howard Foreman there of Yale University. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.